in three, two. This is Angela from Axe and Root Homestead, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. Every week, Tuesday evenings, I meet with a group of other couples, my wife and I. There are 12 of us. There were 12 of us. There are now 16 of us, if you count the the four little ones that run around. We've been meeting for about two years. It's just a, a little home group Bible study and about once a month, someone brings up starting a commune. Now, listen, it's not, it, it's not exactly what you think. It's not, it's not like moving out to California in the 70s. And, you know, it, the idea would be we buy a lot together. We get a mortgage together where we construct a large central building with, you know, huge uh, industrial kitchen and a hangout area. And then we are all in charge of building our own tiny house. Uh, and uh, as, as many of you guys know, I flip houses on the side. And by the side, I mean late at night uh, when I should be sleeping. And uh, everyone, when we bring it up, everyone kind of looks around and says like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not like that. I'm not that joking. Like, I'm, I'm kind of serious. And I was like, yeah, I'm kind of serious too. But I want someone to put up some money already where <laughs> we're waiting for this thing. And... Uh, and I think part of our part of our understanding or desire for this is that our worlds, our lives, our minds, our ears, our eyes are so cluttered. We're we're so cluttered these days. We don't know um, how to take a break from things, and so a lot of us are kind of just ready to throw in not throw in the towel, but but say, "Hey, I need a change. I need something different." And so when our guest today. Uh, Angela Fanning had reached out and wanted to talk about her book. I was like, okay, sure. Great. And, uh, I believe her, your publisher had sent us the book and I, I remember opening it and immediately a couple of us started arguing over who was going to get to take it home first because it was so beautiful and exactly what we talk about. Uh, the sustainable homestead, um, is, well, I'll just say it's an amazing book. We'll, we'll get into it in a second, but Angela, Thank you. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. No, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. We, Kent and I have joked about as well on the podcast, like just going out in the middle of Idaho and living by ourselves. And, and, but, but the thing is like, almost nobody can do that. You know, I bet there's like 2000 people in the United States as a whole who could actually go and live somewhere you know, and, and be sustainable and be self-sufficient and not that you're exactly trying to have people totally self-sufficient, you know, from, from their community, but, but the sustainable homestead really speaks to people being able to support themselves and, and, and work at it. But originally before even writing this book, what got you into the idea of having your own homestead? That's a good question. So for me, homesteading started just with a vegetable garden. And I was the person who went to college and right away started their own business. I was doing graphic and website design and it was growing very quickly. And then I had my first child and I'm trying to balance a business and an intern and and deadlines and be behind a computer when all I'm really thinking about doing is that this doesn't feel real and I just want to be outside. And so how do I get to actually experience 
the weather that day instead of reading about it on an app or on a computer screen? And why am I spending all of my time making logos and making things look beautiful to sell, 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 when it said I wanted to do something more raw and real and with my hands and being dirty? And it, there, a lot of the things that I felt were really important to me before I found to be very superficial after I had a child and it, my pregnancy was unexpected. It, it created this whole transformation for me and an identity shift. Mm. And so I started, you know, I always had a vegetable garden, but I started growing a lot of our own food as a way to uh, be outdoors and spend time with my son. But really I just wanted healthy food and I am also an Italian girl. So fresh ingredients are very important. And I love to cook with things, especially from my backyard. And then it kind of just snowballed. You know, there's a lot of pride in harvesting lettuce and serving it to a group of guests over dinner and saying, I grew that salad you're eating. It was in the ground mm-hmm. like, you know, 20 yeah. minutes ago. They, and, and so then it's just... <laughs> That's why it's a little brown and like... <laughs> <laughs> That's why there's a slug in it. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but then we, it becomes addictive, quite frankly you start to feel the pride and the accomplishment that comes with, you know, growing your own produce or tapping a tree for maple syrup or having bees yeah. for honey. And that just becomes like, well, what can I do next? I'll make my own bread. Now mm. I'm going to make my own soap. Oh, wait, should we get chickens or should we get ducks? And it, it just becomes a snowball effect. And I've always been somebody who was very eco-friendly. And so, of course, to me, it just made sense that I would try to run a homestead in the same way. So it all started with this identity identity shift. And then it, there, there never really was this big initiative of, oh, I'm a homesteader, but I'd like to be greener. It was just, well, no, for me, this is the only way to do it. This is what I'm passionate about. And so it was just the melding or the marriage of two different passions. That is really cool. I, I, I feel like you touched on both of them, but I'm pretty sure that everyone who's ever been into homesteading got it from making their own bread or starting a garden like one of those two <laughs> yeah. and all of a sudden they're like this is kind of fun what's the next thing i can do and if you're a gardener the next thing you can do is chickens and if you're making bread the next thing you can do is soap but both meet in the middle of you living alone in the woods somewhere <laughs> and, and uh but but it, it's really cool that you were led there i don't i mean i would say somewhat naturally but then you talked about jarring not in a bad way but a very disruptive event in your life of, of getting pregnant and having mm-hmm. a child and, and wanting that difference. What, uh, um, when, when you were in that process, what was the hard, right? Cause it, it, we can make it sound all romantic and like, Oh, we just ran off into the sunset in a garden. But what were, what were the hard things that you had to actually give up to, to go with this? Well, I mean, uh, first, I think a lot of people think that because you homestead, you give up modern conveniences, that you don't get pizza or anything. You don't buy groceries from the store. And so, you know, obviously, I get my pizza and I go get my groceries and whatever if I need them. But, I mean, first of all, it's just incredibly overwhelming lifestyle. Where do you start? You know, what? And then it's like Pandora's box for every single genre or facet of homesteading that you're trying to tap into. It's like, well, yes, I'd like to keep bees, but oh my God, now what would I do? You know, so then there's, well, these are the different types of bee breeds and which is right for cold climates. This is how you overwinter. Imagine asking all of those questions or that many questions to every single type of homesteading, you know, activity that you want to do. It's incredibly overwhelming. And then there's the challenge of, okay, well, I I know that I want to learn this. Where are the best resources? It's not on social media. 
you know, because anybody mm. can say anything on social media. Anybody can say yeah. anything on YouTube. Yeah, there's a lot of great information out there, but there's a lot of bad information too. So then you have yeah. to start weeding through it and comparing resources and references. And so for me, I, I chose to put a lot of my um, time and energy into reading books, into reading scientific journals and articles because I wanted to make sure I was getting the right information. Um, but That I, is taken very seriously. My goodness, that yeah. that is awesome. I feel like a lot of people, they see like eight TikToks and they're like, I'm ready. I'm ready <laughs> to jump into this thing. I know about different kinds of soil and I'm very passionate about things. I watched a 20-second TikTok on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it gave me a good excuse to dive into books because I've always been a bit of a, book, a bookworm, you know? Um, I can see that. They're kind of stacked up behind you all over the place. Literally. Yes, yeah. literally. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't mind reading. I don't mind highlighting. I like taking notes. And so it really was like putting myself through school. But honestly, I think the hardest thing about homesteading for people is that you can prepare and you can study as much as you like, but there's nothing compared to real world experience. And at some point, you just have to jump in. And mm. to help you with that, I, you really should find a mentor, somebody that can provide good advice to you that's local and walk mm. you through it and that's going to save you a lot of headache heartache and energy and did you find one of those i did for for not just general homesteading i found a, a beekeeping mentor i found a horse mentor you know so for every single thing there was sort of a specialist that was able to teach me yes and uh, you know that's a lot of work that's a lot of a lot of work to devote to a new way of life but i would say that's the biggest challenge is just getting started yeah and mm -hmm. the, I mean, everything is, is overwhelming when, when you're looking at it and, and the pool is 12 feet deep and you're not sure you can actually swim. Yeah, that is scary. And it's weird because, you know, 200 years ago, um, everyone could do everything okay, yeah. right? And if you really were good at something, maybe you specialized in it. But um, I was in Minneapolis recently and I, and I've lived in California and I've lived in Dallas. So I've, I've. And even though now I live in a town of 10,000 people, I, I know what it's like to live in large cities. And one thing I found very interesting is when I moved back to Iowa and there were a lot less people around, people were a little more well-rounded. But the, the trade-off is when I was in Dallas and there, you know, there's 10 million people around, people were really good at one or two things, but they were really good at one or two things. And I think part uh and, and that becomes efficient for an economy and when when america was booming in the late 1800s in the 1900s and it was all about progress pro, uh progressing the the nation and, and growing it and raising it up um i understand that we're trying to be as efficient as possible but i think we've started to lose some of uh a little too much of uh of i would say our well-roundedness uh, mm -hmm. what made us us in in the name of efficiency right efficiency it can be really awesome but if you start cutting corners if you start if we start losing ourselves if we start losing our roots or heritage or you know even our ability to survive in world war ii you know they had everyone raising their own chickens because they knew that if america was raising their own chickens they'd be more sustainable and less susceptible to uh um to starvation when all the money was going overseas and and it's just very interesting now that now that you've learned all of these things and I'm sure you're still growing in a lot of them like we and one of our favorite episodes ever was a uh, a man named Phil Ebert 
I think he's 80 or 81 years old, and he has dedicated his whole life to bees. And he knows anything you could imagine or want to know about bees. And it's really, really cool. Um, and you need people like that to lead in the industry. But you, you, not everyone needs to be like that. You know, maybe one fill for every, you know, hundreds of people or thousands of people. And then we can kind of learn what we need to, what, what he has filtered and decided is important for us. And, and, and for yourself, do you feel like there's one thing particularly that Angela, if someone came to her and they are like, show me one thing you're the best at in homesteading, do you feel like you have one of those? That's a really good question. Um, I think I'm, I think I'm really good at just integration of different parts. Oh yeah. You know, at, 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 and it's problem solving and it's creativity and I'm constantly trying to devise ways to make things not just better, but more efficient and more productive and to use what I have. So I don't think I would yeah. say that I'm a specialist in my draft horses. I wouldn't say that I'm a specialist in, in my birds. I know them very well, but I wouldn't consider – there's no way that at you know 40 years old I would consider myself as experienced or as educated as someone who's like this gentleman who's been doing it his entire life, right? Mm -hmm. There's just no yeah. way. But that being said, I think if I had to pick something, it would be creating a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. Wow. So my favorite part of your book is where you map out the different layouts that would be sustainable for homesteading, explaining why some things are good and why some things aren't good. And you do it for different sizes of homesteads. It's I love it. I mean, I actually was like, is this a thing? Do people talk about this a lot? And so I Googled it and I found a lot of things that um, just working on a farm I know don't work, mm -hmm. right? I'm not an expert in it, but I'm like, I think they've never done this before in their life. You know, in yours, it just made so much sense. It felt obvious while I was reading it, but at the same time, I didn't know it beforehand. And uh, you only, I mean, my understanding is you have your homestead. How did you come up with these different kinds of layouts? Sure. So actually, when I still had a residential property in Wisconsin, I was on just a regular city block, and that's where I started my first real, like, crop garden, like food, vegetables, and herbs. And that's where I kind of got a sense of, okay, well, I could dedicate this much space realistically to growing produce, but I still want to keep this area for flowers, and I still want to make sure I have this for leisure. And that's where I kind of got my first, first brush with maximizing space. Then mm. when I moved to New Jersey, the next property I moved to was three quarters of an acre. And I could grow so much food on that property, but I had to learn two things. I had to learn to grow up, not out, and I had to learn to replace ornamental landscaping with edible landscaping. And so that mm. really taught me to maximize a different amount of space. And then when I moved here, now I have six acres. And so when I wrote the book, it was like, you can have a homestead on all of these different platforms. You can have a homestead. If you, if you want to say you're a homesteader and you live in an apartment high rise in New York city, you go right ahead. There's people that have honeybee hives off of their, their back, uh, balconies. They've got container gardens. They're making their own bread. They're sourcing CSA fruit and vegetables, and they're making jam and they're canning. That's absolutely a homesteader mindset. Really the only difference between a homesteader and a farmer is a homesteader is somebody who's looking to be more self-sufficient and support people who um, assist with that by way of CSAs, people who make honey, that sort of thing. A farmer is somebody who's making it into a business, 
at least I interpret it that way, and then providing to somebody else. So I think it's the self-sufficiency versus the community. I, it's interesting because when you talk about the difference between providing for a community and you know ho- sustainable homesteading, which is for your home and, and yourself, uh, I, I, the dawn of civilization was the founding of farming, you know, being able to produce more than you need. Uh, so we definitely don't want to take that away. But I think there, something we talk about a lot here on the podcast is being connected to the land because things you're connected to, you take better care of. And not only do you take better care of, but there's like this like spiritual, for lack of a better term, connection that um, helps you appreciate and, and respect uh, what's going on around you. But with, uh, with farming, the big thing that we've seen is as it's become more efficient, it's, there's less connectedness. Um, and we've talked about it because you can't go back to how things just were perfectly. That, I mean, it doesn't make sense. People died when they were 50 years old of colds, you know, we don't want, we don't want that. So there's gotta be something that's different, but at the same time, maybe as civilization has taken one step in front of another and and it's been the right step right but all of a sudden we're we're veered off just a little bit with every step where we look around we're like oh we're we're a little ways from where we need to be how do we get there and i think people individually being connected to what they can produce and what they uh can be a part of is part of the solution to that it is people caring not only what they can do with their own hands but what their land can provide. And so then it, it makes them just more aware of what is around them and where their things come from. Because when you know you can grow a tomato and your tomatoes look a certain way and then you get them from the grocery store and they don't really look that way. I wonder why they're, you know, look a little too round, kind of like a bouncy ball. Uh, it's, you know, you just start to wonder and you start to think about it and you start to Google these things and you start to read books about sustainable homesteading. And, and mm-hmm. I just think it helps everyone it helps our community become stronger if we are connected in place. And that is something you've talked about. Something I, I want to talk about with you is in your title, the sustainable homestead. What are the main differences between sustainable and unsustainable? Well, I think you could interpret sustainable in two different facets, right? You could look at it as the eco-friendly side. The term sustainable has come into play a lot with... Um, I mean, I don't want to say greenwashing, but anything that's environmentally focused or environmentally based, people throw in the word sustainable. So we can look at it mm. that way. And there's certainly, you know, based on principle, uh, permaculture principles and practices, which is a lot of what I do, that's all geared towards connecting to the planet. If you take care of the planet, it's going to take care of you and then you'll be healthy and you can take care of others. And so it's this sort of tenant where... We want our practices to be giving back more to the earth than what we're taking from it. But then also with sustainable, for example, you know, not too long ago with COVID, people were freaking out going to the grocery store. They were buying all the toilet paper and all the things. Yeah. We did not go. I remember. Yeah. I think I think it's going to be burned into everyone's brain for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, talk about post-traumatic stress syndrome for a lot of people. But there's... There's something to be said for the fact that we didn't have to go to the grocery store for three months. Mm. We didn't. And so that's a different kind of sustainable, right? We were able to take care of ourselves. And so the Sustainable Homestead book, it 
it's a it's a good overarching title, I think, because it's not just about being eco-friendly and it's not just about canning and putting up stored goods and saying, well, now I can get through X, Y and Z if I need to. It's really both. It's really all of that. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to what you were talking about before. If we if we know a wide array of skills on the homestead, we know how to take care of our animals if we have them. Our animals can then properly be rotated. They can take care of the soil. Our soil is going to be healthier. So now when it's time to grow crops in that same space, we're going to have healthier crops. And then we're going to have more nutrients in our bodies. And then, you know, we are all connected. And that's what the whole homestead ecosystem is about. It's about realizing that all of these pieces, including the farmer, the farmer isn't just running the show. The farmer facilitates each piece and brings them in. But it's my job to make sure everything is appropriate. Everything fits in where it needs to. Because too much of a good thing is just going to be a bad thing. Right? Yes. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Okay. I really too much of, of a good thing is actually going to be a bad thing. Yeah, I think that speaks to a lot of uh, of you know a lot of what we go through today mm-hmm. in the United States and and how we we are living our lives. And I I do think we are swinging back. You know, we swung one way, um, high levels of production, which were really good and, and got us as far as we are. And I, and I think, like you were saying, that. There was too much of that good thing, and now and now we're we're headed back, and there's this whole movement of of homesteading and 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 a lot of people trying to learn about it. And mm-hmm. so I was wondering, you decided so you you had made this transition to homesteading, but in terms of of writing the book, what what caused you to decide you wanted to do that? So I always kind of felt like I had this book in me, like I wanted to share what I was doing because when. I started homesteading, I was looking up what I thought was called holistic homesteading, right? Ways to be eco-friendly and go about doing all of these different things. I didn't know that it was called permaculture. Um, And so then (laughs) (laughs) when I came across it and like this massive amount of resources opened up for me, I was like, oh my God, this is an entire approach. It's an entire way to farm that people have been doing all over the world for centuries. And it doesn't degrade the land and it creates healthier food and animals. And I was like, this is, this is it for me. And so then it was like a major, like just going down the rabbit hole. I drank all the Kool-Aid. I was learning as much as I could and implementing it. And I was seeing differences in my land. And I thought, you know what? I had to go seek a lot of this out and I had to learn it piecemeal. And so I enrolled in through Cornell University. They have a permaculture course. I enrolled in that because I wanted to make sure I was solidifying what I'd learned. I wasn't Mm. operating out of left field. And I created a resource that I wish I had had when I started. And so I Mm. I had created this series called the Little Homesteader Series. This publisher approached me out of London and asked me to write a four-part series geared towards families, whether or not they lived in the country or in a major metropolitan area, it couldn't matter. It needed to get people in a homesteading mindset. So that was a challenge because it also couldn't be too specific that people in the UK had different plants or different access to food based on their locale. So that was a challenging, albeit fun, little series to write. But I thought this is not what I was looking for. I'm looking for something deeper that I can really share what I'm doing here. And that's when I approached my publisher and I said, I have an idea for a book. (laughs) He's like, okay, what is it? And together we formulated what is now the sustainable homestead. That is really cool. I, 
Yeah, when someone feels like they have something to share, mm -hmm. I uh, usually what is shared actually. I mean, this it really matters. You know what you're saying. What you're saying really matters. But the when someone has something to share, it's going to come out. You know, one way or another. And I, I like that you chose the book route. I feel like, um, and I, I've checked out your YouTube. It is really good. If anyone's listening and they haven't checked out your YouTube, it's not under Angela Fanning. It is. Oh, remind me, Roots and... Axe and Root uh, Homestead. Axe and Root Homestead. Yep. It, I, I watched through a bunch of your videos, and they were very good. Oh, thanks. Um, but you you didn't seem to pick YouTube as your your primary. Or, yeah, I, I just love that you decided, I'm going to go with books. And I, I feel like when people start to get more serious about things, that's when they pick up the books. Like, a lot of people hobby YouTube things. But uh, when you... When when you've drank enough Kool Aid, yeah. you, you pick up a book, and I really like that you chose that medium. Do you, uh, you think you have a second one in you as well? Yeah, I'm sure I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, I'm, so, I mean, I just honestly, I'm just so passionate about it, and Instagram is kind of my main platform online, right? Yeah. But especially now where it's like if you're not showing pictures of a cat dancing in pajamas, nobody's going to see it because it's just it's yeah. all about virability now. Yeah. It's not a sustainable platform to share that passion anymore. So Education. I, yeah, I make short little tidbits, you know, I try to make it interesting and there's a lot of people that are really very supportive and engaged and that's great. But for me, I guess maybe it comes back to my just naturally being a book junkie. Like mm. I can, I, I can fit so much in a book and if somebody wants a break, they put it down and they can come back later and I don't have to worry yeah. about them not bookmarking my video or did I say yep. it fast enough without getting all tongue tied? You know, it's yeah. just, I think, I think there's a lot more connection to be had as an author when you can yeah. carry on for paragraphs and people are picturing things. And then I've got diagrams. Like I want to be a part of somebody's homesteading journey, not just a minute of their day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, so I, I really like to read as well. I do a lot of nonfiction audio or fiction audiobooks, mm -hmm. but my nonfiction, I try to keep almost exclusively, you know, hard copy because I love to underline. I like to, I do the little exclamation mark next to paragraphs that I really like those yeah. kinds of things. And, and so I, I don't know, I really connected with the book as well, but the, I'm, I'm wondering like you're writing this, you're writing this book and, and, um, you're basically like with someone on their couch next to them, helping teach them. Is there anything that if you could share with them in person to look out for like a warning when they're jumping in, you know, wet behind the ears in terms of home study, what would you warn them about? Chapter one is probably the most important part of the book, because if you do not pay attention to your site, your specific geographical location, and you're paying too much attention to mine or your neighbors mm. or the people you have on Pinterest, it's not going to yeah. work. It's not going to work. A sustainable homestead, a permaculture homestead is all about your extremely focused microclimate in order for it to yeah. work. So you have to have plants that are in your growing zone. You want yeah. If you have a stream, but the farm that you love on Pinterest doesn't, well, maybe you can have ducks when they might have chickens. Your ducks would love a stream, you know? Yeah. And also, what are your temperatures like? What's your growing zone? I mean... How much shade do you have? There is so much information that you can gain just by looking outside that nobody is going to be able to tell you. 
man. You have to pay attention. That, that is really cool. Uh, it, it's crazy. If, if you ask someone who's never owned chickens, uh, hasn't been around them much, they say, hey, what's going on in this chicken pen? They would tell you they're walking around, they're pecking each other, they're eating, and they're pooping. <laughs> but we've got a good friend. One of our first podcast interviews, um, and a good friend of mine, Paul Adama, uh-huh. he has chickens. And at any given point in time, he could tell you exactly which one's at the top, you know, what order the pecking order is, what who gets to eat first, how they're communicating. He says, hey, that one's actually chasing that one off, or that one is letting one that one know, hey, you're kind of getting in my space right now. You know, he, he knows exactly. And it's because he spent so much time with his chickens. He told me, uh, it, I mean, he's like 24 years old, but he might as well be an old man to me. He, he uh, like, I'm pretty sure he reads the newspaper, like, like a real paper yeah yeah (laughs) and uh, but instead of like sitting out and and feeding i guess it is birds bird watching yeah he he watches his chickens yeah he just he just hangs out and i think the same thing with the land paying attention to your land that you have is super super important we have a company that we do bids for and they're very high dollar bids because these guys come in they do soil type tests and in 50 acres they might have they might have 10 different mixes that they want for those specific 50 acres because they are going to very specifically get uh, get the right mix for each area, for each hillside if they need to. What what way is it facing? What kind of soil? How much water does it get? You know, and um, when when you start connecting with your land enough to know those things, then you can really start to get the most out of your land and give the most back at the same time. Well, absolutely. And I think... Okay, so two things. Your friend sounds like a good farmer because he's like, Lear- <laughs> this is, I don't mean to sound all woo-woo, but it's like when yeah. you when you live every day with animals, you kind of pick up on their language, right? Because they don't use vocal language. Like, I mean, yeah, they, yeah. they can yell and scream and whatever. But the nuances of their behavior is their language. And so it's really cool to be able to start to understand, like when my horse's ears are this way, it means this. And oh, wait, they're, that, when they stand like that, they're actually pretty rigid. That's not a relaxed stance, you know? So yeah. it's really interesting and really cool to see that. So your friend's a good farmer. But um, what I was going to say is one thing that people tend to forget about is wildlife. And the example I like to use is, okay, everybody thinks if you start a farm, you need to get a barn cat. Great. Some people are against barn cats. Some people love them. If you decide to get a barn cat, chances are you have rodents, right? But here's the thing. Did you pay attention at all? when you moved into your farm, to whether or not you have owls. Because if Mm. the cat starts taking care of the rodents, what's the owl going to eat? The owl might start going after your cat. If it's it's small enough, the cat might start going after your chickens. Then all of a sudden, you're going to start having a predatory issue. And then you think, well, now I need Mm. to bring in something to protect my chickens. It was just a lack of observation. So really, yeah. everything is a balance. It's not just creating a balance in your farm or homestead. It's actually creating a balance with your entire ecosystem around you. And when you start mm. to alter the balance of the food chain between the wildlife, that's when there's a disruption and people start losing animals. Hmm. What? So just on a personal emotional note, not logical at all, what's yeah. your favorite animal you have? Horses, hands down. Uh, do you have a favorite horse? Well, no, I love, I honestly love them both for different reasons. I have a mare I can't do anything with. She's a pain in the butt, but she's a challenge (laughs) and she makes me work for her affection. And so I I like that. But then my gelding. The old hard to get. Totally works for me. But then I have a senior gelding who is an Amish rescue and he's taught me everything I know about driving. 
He was absolutely terrified mm. of me to have me touch him at first. When he got here, he was treated horribly. We had to fix him up health-wise. Mm. But mentally, he needed a lot of fixing and tending, too. But now, yeah. the only reason I know how to use a, a, a drag or a plow with a horse is because he was patient enough to let me learn right under harness. Mm. And so that relationship is something that I'll probably never get back, you know? Yeah. That's really cool. I, yeah. You guys couldn't see it, but her face was pained when I asked her that question. Like, I was asking her <laughs> favorite kid or something like that. She's, like, angry. I mean, like, why would you? That's so rude. Why would you ask me? <laughs> My favorite horse. I love them all. Equally. Equally, of course. Equally, yes. Um, everyone yeah. equal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, you have a horse pulling a plow, you said? Yeah, but I – okay, so I tell people a plow. I don't plow because I'm – I'm, I'm – I don't want to disrupt soil, so I don't till. I'm a no-till person. Yep. But I, I use a wagon, and so uh, that's how we take the compost out from the stalls every day. When I clean the stalls, I hook wow. up the horse, and the horse pulls it, and that's, our, our, that's great for him. He, it's great exercise, um, keeps him from struggling with his arthritis, keeps him limber, but also I get to say that I drive a horse every day, which is just yeah. amazing. Uh, so that is wild. We do that. He hauls in like the big pumpkin harvest for me from my food forests. Um, like if I need to drag manure out through the fields, uh, we hook up a drag. They pull that. I have a four wheeler. I can do it with two. But I mean, there's just something really cool about working with a 2,200 pound horse. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I. I mean, that is really cool. I. We use ATVs and UTVs, um, but. More than anything, we like our little, uh, we like our little golf cart to go around in, yeah. you know, because it makes the smallest footprint, you know, in general. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I think it'd be, I'd, my, I'd be hard pressed to convince my dad that uh, a horse would be a good idea. Like, hey, we need to go hoe at this other farm here. Like, I'll oh, just jump on the old horse, <laughs> head on out there. Don't even worry about it, dad. You know, I don't, I don't know how well that would go. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. The chore takes about like three or four times longer than if I just hooked oh. up to a four-wheeler, you know, because I've got to hook the I have to hook the horse up. I've got to get all its gear, all its tack on. You know, we got to go out. Yeah. It's got to stand there. I have to hook it up. But, I mean, at the end of the day, like, that's kind of why I do what I do. It's like this whole approach of simple living. Like, I get to be in it. And so yeah. this whole life of efficiency, you know, we were talking about that before. Like, we have these specialists. They make things more efficient for us. But, like, what are we gaining out of that? Yeah. I mean, what am I supposed yeah. to be? I always tell people, like, they say that's so much work that takes so much time. Okay, but what am I supposed to be doing with the time? Yeah. Should I be watching Netflix? Because to me, that's not a good use of, of my time. I'd rather be outside doing this. Yeah. So until somebody can give me an answer that makes me feel like, okay, I'm in the wrong. I feel like I'm, pr- I'm, I'm doing pretty good right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, man, I, something I really respect, this might sound out of left field, but. I really respect about runners and bikers it like lifelong ones, not just one that's like, Oh, I have a half. This, this is me right now. I have a half marathon coming up in a few months. So I happen to be running for the first time in a very long time. Good job. And, Congratulations. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a good job when I'm running. My goodness. I'm like embarrassed trying to run on back roads. No one's driving <laughs> on. So who's that man that looks like he's walking, but trying to run. Uh, <laughs> uh, but some, like the lifelong runners and bikers, they understand, Hey, this this is the destination. This enjoyment of what we are doing, this process is the destination. And that is something that we just don't understand. And I don't mean like, oh, this generation, you know, this, that I'm part of it. You know, I have a very hard time understanding that the, 
um, that the process and the wading through and the the working through and the growing and the the growing pains that is that is the joy of it you know and and then the i was listening to a podcast with this gentleman who was out by himself in like the middle of like the wilderness out in russia um and for weeks and he said that he'd go days without eating something and then he'd finally eat a fish and he said the dopamine rush you you get when you finally eat something when your life basically depends on it. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it was incredible. And I think we don't get that as much anymore because we don't, since we don't appreciate the process, we don't do process as much. And since we don't do process as much, we don't get that hard earned victory. And, uh, just a little side rant here. I think that's why people still talk about their high school sports. Cause that was the last time they went through a hard process to, to find some sort of victory. No, that's, that's a really good point. That absolutely could be. But also we don't, in a modern day society, I mean, we are so lucky to have modern conveniences and to have it be cushy and comfortable. And if we crave a certain type of food, we can go get it at the snap of, you know, whatever, DoorDash. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, look at how many anxious and depressed people we have. And why is that? And is it because they're not getting outside and they're not doing something with their hands? And as, as you know, somebody who's a survivor of postpartum depression, I feel I can say that. I think that I honestly, I was able to get out of my head and stop fixating in this like record-like pattern of these thoughts that were just consuming me because I was able yeah. to just get out and focus on something else. Hmm. That is really cool. So with that, with that like new discovery or this new like way of living, um, what, and you've talked about a bunch of your, your joys that you've had in it. we just talked about the process being, you know, part of the biggest joy. What, what's the greatest joy you've had in it? Where, where do you find the most, whether it's a day to day thing you currently do or something you discovered or. Mm -hmm. So working with Finnegan, my horse that I plow with, that's a daily high for me. That's something every mm -hmm. day that I feel so lucky to be able to do that. Like for me, that just. That just brings me so much joy. That whole process of cleaning stalls and shoveling manure, putting it in the thing and like hooking it up to him and having him pull it and coming back and he gets to graze as his reward. And it's like, good job. We work together. It's that hour is like a sacred space for me. But that's really cool. Thank you. But then like one of the other things that I just get so much pride and accomplishment from is making a dinner from food entirely grown from the farm. It, that is yeah. so cool. And knowing what went into each and every bite. Like, I grew that. I didn't use fertilizer, but I improved my soil this way. And I had to put water. And then I companion planted with this to make it more productive and repel insects. And it's like, the person is literally eating the fruits of my labor, which is just oh. really cool. Man, Angela, you're making me want to drink the Kool-Aid. You're making me want to jump in. <laughs> hey, Dad, I'm gonna. I'm just letting you know now. I'm quitting my job. I'll, I'll be homesteading from now on. <laughs> um, that is really cool. I that is something, man. My so my friends, we've talked about this so much. Like some of us could have a garden, some of yeah. us could have goats and have milk, and some could have chickens, or we could all have chickens and and things like that. Um, Danielle, my wife. And I have been, so like I said, we've been flipping houses, but we usually live in the houses. Um, but our, our one act of like defiance in, even though we're in the middle of, you know, the whole, uh, uh, flipping a home and, and doing it for profit, 
uh, our one act of defiance is we always put in a pollinator garden. <laughs> That's so cool. we're like, this will have something that is good for this earth here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> despite all of the wood that I reused to make this place. But uh, yeah, I, it, it's something we've definitely talked about, especially as uh, um, even when we talk about having kids, we're like, well, what, we've talked about for her. She loves being outside. She loves gardening. Uh, our first house we had a garden in or second house we had a garden in and, and she loved it. But it was, we talked about just what does it look like? You know, okay. Yeah. Maybe it would be hard for us to make a living off of, uh, off of just my income right now. But what if we like didn't have the $800 a month for food? You know, what if it was less than that? Or what if we could sell some of it, you know, and things like that. Um, but uh, every once in a while we get this like big, and you're giving it to me right now, this big kick of like, we should, we should homestead. We should do more. We should get chickens. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've like been like on Facebook marketplace looking for chicken coops being like, this is it. I'm getting it this time. You know, <laughs> we're going in and then, and then we're like, oh wait, we're moving in three months. That's right. We're <laughs> you can take them. You take them with you. We, so I wanted to get a van Yeah. with like a box van and put the chickens in the back sure. and then drive them around, you know? Why not? Uh, I uh money (laughs) that was the the money (laughs) yeah there's a lot a lot of great passion in my heart and and I just need to sell some oil to have the money to do those good things that's so so funny yeah yeah so uh again thank you so much for hanging out with us today and and as we're wrapping up I wanted to know or see uh we like to get what's like the most passionate thing that people think of in terms of culture changing things or what they want to put their weight behind. Uh, Typically I ask it like this. If you could snap your finger and change one major thing about our culture, what would it be? It would be that people in neighborhoods and people are going to hate me, but that people in neighborhoods on city blocks were all required to have a small vegetable garden. Hmm. That is interesting. And I think that there would be a totally different set of circumstances in terms of confidence, food reliance, I think mental health. I think there are so many benefits from that. Wouldn't need to be a big garden, just a couple of four by eight raised beds. Yeah. If people were required to do that, learn that task, teach their kids that task, learn to care for something, keep it alive. I think there are so many lessons in that. Yeah, absolutely. That is a really interesting. I, I've never had anyone close to that answer. Oh, that is you. really cool. Thank you. Ha- having to have a <laughs> having to have a garden of your own, you know, and we might start begrudgingly. We might be frustrated that the dirt doesn't come from under our fingernails the first or second wash, but uh, after a while, you start to like it, especially when you taste those first green beans or the sugar snap peas for the very first time. Yeah. Like, oh, this is awesome. I think I love this. Um, yeah. Or imagine yeah. if it was even like the government helped to like subsidize it and they said, yeah, here's your allowance to start your garden, everybody. Here's like, yeah. even if it was just like 200 bucks. Okay, everybody gets 200 bucks yeah. like on your tax return. And then here's your yeah. gardening allowance. Yeah. That's amazing. Think about how much carbon that could absorb from the atmosphere. That would feed honeybees. It would feed people. It could feed the poor. Like excess produce could go to food pantries. Yeah. It would save oh, the yeah. world. It would save the world. 
It would save the world. You heard it here first. Angela knows how to save the world. People just aren't listening enough. So people, go buy the, the sustainable homestead. You will save the world. People are going to think I'm so full of myself when they hear this episode. No, 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 no. They're going to think you're awesome. Uh, That you have really, really cool ideas. You're very thoughtful, well-read, and well-written. Thank you. That's very kind. Yeah, yeah. I think – so I I don't know. I'm not always for more rules, but Kent and I were talking one time. Like, wouldn't it be cool if the government outlawed uh, uh, grass lawns? Wouldn't that be cool? That would be so interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like, what would that even look like? You'd have to replace it with something. You could do natives. You could do garden. You could do animal like areas. Um, could people do rock I, lawns? Would that be allowed? Or no rock lawns? Probably. Probably. That's okay. Yeah. Which I, I don't know if that's. I don't know. I, that's uh, a habitat. I'm sure they're... It's a habitat for like insects and lizards. Oh, that's true. Especially down south and southwest. Yeah. yeah. That's, I bet that's like an optimal option. I, I, one of my best friends makes a living installing sprinklers in California. Mm hmm. And, um, uh, and he does a great job, but I always just like watch that. I'm like, Oh my goodness. (laughs) Like to sustain lawns that like are kind of always Brown and, and like for what, (laughs) like I could sell you grass that's native that only grows six inches. You'll never have to mow it and you don't have to water it. You know, like what, you know, it goes back to like a social pride, you know, a certain kind of status and you know, all the fun things humans, uh, have a privilege of dealing with, but um yeah i just think it'd be interesting i it was a great answer. sorry to diverge from your uh uh from your brilliant answer of, of requiring <laughs> gardens no, <it's laughs> saving okay. the world sorry gonna, that's what it was we're gonna save, save the, the world, world with vegetable gardens yes <laughs> man well angela if people really loved hearing what you had to say and i'm sure they will uh where would they find more of you um, so I am most active on instagram it's the name of my homestead which is axe axe and A&D Root Homestead. Axe and Root Homestead is my handle for things all across the board. So you'll find me on Instagram, Twitter, and um, uh, not Twitter. Why did, why did I say Twitter? You'll find me on Instagram, TikTok, <laughs> and YouTube. And then uh, I also have a website, axeandroothomestead.com. So if you're not into social media, you can find a lot of my post-formatted blog style there. But the Sustainable Homestead, yeah, and the Little Homesteader series, those are the books that I've authored that are out anywhere that you can get books yeah and if you guys are part of our newsletter uh angela i don't i don't know if i told you this we actually we have a section of what we're watching what we're reading you know stuff like that and the what we're reading we put a link to the sustainable homestead cool we do not get any money from that angela did not say hey i'll give you money if you did we just really like the book that's so it's really what we're nice thank you yeah actually a uh, little begrudgingly it was the most clicked on thing from this past <laughs> newsletter I was a little bummed because I had a really cool podcast that I put on there and way more people clicked on the book. Okay. <laughs> but uh, that's fine. That's fine. We're, we're cool. Um, Thank you for doing yeah, that. It, that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we really do like the book. We um, and, and just so you guys know, as we've told you before, we do not get paid by any authors or any of the people that are doing this. Uh, we had her on because we really liked the book. It is worth uh, worth giving a if or at least if you're not going to buy the book check her out in other places and i'm sure you'll be convinced by the book but uh um don't forget you can save the world by uh putting in a uh, vegetable garden or you could come close to saving the world by putting in a pollinator garden and you can find mm-hmm. those at theprairiefarm.com 
uh, and it's coming up. We're we're about to hit May. I think it'll be May by the time this episode drops, and and the perfect time to plant is late May, first of June. Um, but yeah, it was a bummer. I think I didn't say this at the beginning of the episode. Sorry, guys. Kent couldn't make it today, and we are we are very sad. I almost said R.I.P., but he's very alive. He is just somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> we will miss him, uh, Kent. I, I miss you, man. I uh, it went a little faster without you, but it, it was less <laughs> enjoyable. So, uh, <laughs> Angela, thank you so much. And uh, as everyone, as you all know, conservation happens one mind at a time. Mm-hmm.